Good morning, Potter's House. How's everybody doing this morning? We doing good? Everybody ready to worship this morning? Let's stand to our feet and let's do this thing. Let's get those hands together. Come on, you can do it. Blessed be your name in the land that is plentiful, where streams of abundance flow. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name found in the desert place. Every blessing you pour out on, turn back and When the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, sing out. Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. 
Good morning, Potter's House. How's everyone? You sure? Uh, <laughs> all right, announcements. Ladies' Bible study has kicked off, and I am sure that that is rocking on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Tuesday mornings and Thursday evenings, I should say. Giving statements are out at the Welcome Center, so if you want to pick up your giving statements, they're out there. Operation Christmas Child. We're already talking about Operation Christmas Child. It's January, right? Okay, they're starting to collect items already, and that is hats, gloves, and scarves. Okay, we have a new website. I announced this last week. We do have a new website, and it's up and running. The first event on that new website is a teen, a youth event called Cross Train. And um, ladies, I think we've got another announcement coming up here as well. Because I announced this last week and I had no idea what it was. So I'm sure Janelle's going to do a lot better than I did. Thank you, Paul. We are excited. Um, like he had mentioned, we have kicked off our Bible study. You have not missed anything. You can jump in this week. Um, so I just want to reiterate what he said. On Tuesday mornings, we're meeting here from 10 to 1130, studying the armor of God. And then on Thursday nights, we're meeting here at the church also at 630. So if you've not signed up, feel free to sign up back in the Welcome Center, and we would love to have you. And please invite neighbors, friends, other family members. We would love to be able to have you women join us. And then we're super excited for Bunko Night. So last week, there was a little buzz about Bunko, and people have played in the past. So it's a dice game, Paul. Uh, maybe we'll have to do a couple's bunco night one night so you can learn. But what it is, it's just rolling dice, fellowshipping, having fun. I have to say in Texas, we've had some tables flipped, people diving on the floor, a broken hand, but I don't expect that here at the lake. It should be a lot more laid back. <laughs> so girls are invited. Please bring your granddaughters, your daughters, um, invite neighbors, maybe about age five on up would be great that they can play the game with us. So I hope you can come out February 5th from 6 to 8 o'clock and just bring a snack to share. Thank you. And I just want to say <laughs> that I'm relieved to know what bunco actually means because where I came from in northeastern Massachusetts there was a bunco squad and they took care of vice and other issues like that. I'm just saying. But thankfully, the ladies are apparently into something else, although they're turning over tables and people laying on the floor. I don't know. I don't know what to think anymore. Good morning. Um, we've, it's been a long time since we've had a chalk talk. Uh, we're, we're still working towards ordaining uh, some folks uh, towards the, uh, during this first quarter, and uh, we're hoping that that uh, you'll feel involved just because of these chalk talks that we've had. and. The responsibility that we'll ask you to take for, for helping us to vet the people that are going to be ordained. Um, I, I, I do want to remind you about where we've been. We've been talking from Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verses 11 to 13, 14 or so, where Paul lays out for us something called the gifts of Christ to the church. Uh, he made a difference between the gifts of the Spirit, which are spiritual abilities that are given to every one of us and enable us to, to fill a role within the fellowship. Uh, this, the gifts of Christ to the church are not abilities, they're, they're actually men. 
And in that list, Paul said that there were apostles, like Paul himself, who was an apostle. There were prophets, men like Barnabas and Silas, both had the ministry of apostles. There were evangelists, different than the evangelists of, of today. They didn't have quite the same role. Timothy and Titus were both evangelists, evangelists, and they would follow up the work that Paul and Barnabas did as they brought the gospel to a new area, and then they would go in, one of them would go in and establish the church. The church at Ephesus is an excellent example of that. Timothy was there long-term for, we think, about three years. Uh, Paul stayed there for a long time, and then he sent Timothy back there. He sent Timothy to Philippi, and well, it was a, you know, it was a perfect system. Uh, but then there was this one group of, ma- of men at the end. They're called pastor teachers. And we discovered, as we've talked about it, that that's the one ministry that's not itinerant. Ap- apostles, prophets, evangelists are all itinerant ministries, and they're going to minister in various places uh, around the world and, and, and take on different opportunities and responsibilities. Pastor teachers actually remain in the same place and watch over the church that the apostles, prof- the apostles and prophets plant the church, the evangelist establishes the church and, and ordains leadership, and then all of those guys, they just kind of go away, and, and the pastor teachers take responsibility for leading the church. There are actually uh, five different names. Pastor teacher is the one that Paul uses in Ephesians 4, and, uh, you know, it's pastors and teachers, and so we're not really sure whether he meant that to be just one term, but, but uh, teaching is a primary role that pastors have. In other places, he talks to us about elders and bishops and overseers and shepherds. And... Uh, this is where you may be surprised to hear me say that these are five different names for the same office in the church. These are five different titles. And the reason that the names are so diverse is because, well, elders have a huge responsibility. Pastor teachers or elders have a huge responsibility in the fellowship. Sometimes they need to draw in new believers and help them to grow in Christ, and that's when elders uh, becomes a reality. Sometimes they're feeding the flock, and, and that's, that's uh, when they're filling, fulfilling their shepherding role. Sometimes they're just making sure that the church doesn't spend more money than it has, and that's an overseeing role at that point, that they oversee the ministries of the church and make sure that everybody functions well. And so we have these five different names, and the reason, and I know you, know you were probably surprised to hear me say that they all describe the same office. They all describe the same man within the fellowship. The reason that I say that is because these names, these words, these titles are used interchangeably throughout the New Testament. For example, in Ephesians chapter 20, Paul makes his last visit to Ephesus, the last time they're ever going to see his face. And he actually says that to them, you won't see me again this side of heaven. And they, you know, they get out of the beach and they hug on one another and they cry on one another's shoulders because they're going to miss the Apostle Paul. But in order to set up that meeting, there had, been, there had been severe riots in Ephesus the last time Paul visited. And so he wasn't anxious to go there again. So when he gets to Miletus, he sends for the elders of the church. 
He says to the elders, I want you to come down and talk to me. And remarkably, he doesn't send for the pastor of the church. The things that he's about to say to these guys would be intended for a pastor in today's economy, in the way we do church today. But he sends for the elders of the church, and then while he's there talking to them, he calls them overseers and then tells them to shepherd the flock. Three of, the, of, the term, of those terms are used interchangeably in that one passage. That's not the only place where interchangeability happens, but it is an important place because three of them are right there. In other places, you'll see elders and, and overseers uh, listed together and pastor teachers. and Well, all that to say that uh, every true church Every true New Testament church, including in 2022, every true New Testament church is led by a plurality of elders who also operate as bishops and overseers and, and pastor teachers and, and shepherd the flock. Every true New Testament church is led by a plurality. Leadership in the church, we've been talking about this, isn't top-down from a pastor who is a CEO and downward. It's from a group of men who sit underneath the church and serve everyone in the fellowship as they seek to grow. We measure a man's influence in the, in the business world by how many people serve him. We measure a man's influence in the church by how many people he serves. There's a huge difference between those two things. At the same time now, there's another term, and it's really important because this is going to come up in, uh, in 1 Timothy, another term called deacons. And these are not used interchangeably. The one place where they occur together in the same passage, elders are held to one standard and deacons are held to another standard. The elders are the ones who lead the church. The deacons and deaconesses are the ones who serve the church. And uh, we'll be getting into that as we get into First Timothy, not this morning, but, uh, but that's how that's going to work. I, I hope that you realize that, that we, have, we have set our course here at the Potter's House to be as reflective as possible, as reflective as we understand of the way they did church in the, in the first century. Because I am convinced, and we are all convinced, everyone that's at the, in the, a part of the core team, we are convinced that we are not necessarily doing church better in the 21st century than they did in the 1st century, especially when you read the book of Acts and realize what they accomplished with the resources that they had compared to the resources that we have today. And so uh, uh, we're going to be going after that in 1 Timothy, and we're going to talk about discipleship as we go. But we just want you to know that uh, at least as of right now, we're looking to add to the number of elders rather than adding to the number of deacons right now, this, this time around. And so next week, uh, when we look at this again, we take up this subject again, I'm going to be talking to you about the qualifications of an elder. We'll have about five Sundays on that. And the thing is, I want to remind you before we even get into it, they are qualifications, not disqualifications. We want to look for people who have qualified themselves to lead by meeting the qualifications that Paul lists in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. Buckle your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy ride. Because here at the Potter's House, we don't just want to go to church. We want to... Yeah.
There are times when I wish that the, uh, the message actually came before the worship time, and uh, this has been one of those times. That, uh, that song that we just sang together has ministered to my heart over the years. All my life you've been faithful. All my life you've been so, so good. And this is the part especially. With every breath that I am able, I will sing of the goodness of God. I hope that's our attitudes this morning. I know that things don't always go exactly as you wish they would. Uh, and, and that's certainly true of me. Things don't always go the way I wish they would. And that first song that we sang resonates with that very reality as well. When everything is as exactly as I wish it would be, I will bless your name. And when things get dark and difficult, I will still bless your name. Glad you're here this morning, and uh, we're actually going to be starting into uh, another series. Uh, uh, you can see from that thing up there that James is not, uh, is not, on, the, it's not on the screen anymore. That's First Timothy, and it's written by a whole different guy, and you know, we're going to delve into that as we go. But one last time with James, this book, Brian's book that he wrote, Brian McKenzie's here, he's spoken a few times. Uh, this book that Brian wrote uh, in order to help coaches to study God's Word on their own in the book of James is available. And if you signed up to get one of these at the end of last year, they are available out there at the Welcome Center on the kiosk there. And so you should stop by and pick one up. And they are free in exchange for a gift of $10. That's the way. <laughs> no, we, we, we don't, if you've paid already, then just go get one. If you haven't paid already, and we are keeping track. If you haven't paid already, then uh, you might want to pay, but you, know, you could still go get one, and we can have the, like, the book police get in touch with you or something. But um, do pick up your book, and there's extra copies. If you didn't order one, feel free to grab one for the same price. It's just so cool the way this whole thing works. But um, we've been working our way. We're, we're, this morning we'll be beginning our studies in Paul's first letter to Timothy, as you can see there, uh, in a series entitled, Be Strong in Grace. And this is part one, and entitled, An Intro to First Timothy. What's well, such a clever title, I know, but you'll understand why I gave it that clever title as we go. I'd like to begin our time together in 1 Timothy by reading the passage that we'll be unpacking this morning. I know it's early, but uh, you know we're early in 1 Timothy, so if you would, stand with me and we'll read together aloud, if you're able to stand and read aloud. We'll read together aloud from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Read with me. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Lord. Thank you. You can take your seats and uh, be confident in the fact that, that God blesses us with his truth whenever we read his word. Let me go back there. It occurred to me this week that uh, it was probably important to you that I do an introduction, that I introduce you to the book before we begin to delve into it too deeply. But um, I, I thought that perhaps the best way for me to introduce you to Paul's first letter to Timothy would be to introduce you to Timothy himself. Uh, he's an important man in the New Testament and was very close to the Apostle Paul. And if we get to know him a little bit, 
and understand the relationship that existed between Paul and Timothy, I think we'll have an edge on understanding the letter as we delve into it. So uh, I'd, I'd, I'd like to introduce you not just to 1 Timothy, but to Timothy. During the course of Paul's ministry, he went on several missionary journeys, and I say that in quotes because it's a term, it's an old term that's been used for centuries, but uh, he went on several missionary journeys with the goal of preaching the gospel in places where the gospel had not been preached, in places where they didn't know about Jesus. In fact, there's a passage at the end of the book of Romans that we've looked at many times, but I think we could benefit from looking at it again this morning because it's there that we can find the rationale that Paul used as he made ministry decisions. Paul realized there were all kinds of opportunities, and uh, you know, I'm sure we would have loved to have had the Apostle Paul come and speak at our church. I know, oh man, I would, love, I would give anything to sit and listen to, man, to that man teach, but um, and that's not possible because he's been dead for 2,000 years now, more or less. And, but uh, look what he says in Romans chapter 15, verses 20 to 22. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known among the unreached, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, to those who were not, to those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. This is why I have often been hindered in coming to you. Satan didn't hinder Paul from getting to Rome. Paul quoted the prophet Isaiah, and that's embedded right there in that passage. He quoted the prophet Isaiah to establish the fact that he believed that he was supposed to take the gospel to people who had never heard the gospel, to people who were unreached. The people in Rome had heard the gospel, and there was a thriving church there in Rome. And that's when Paul means when he says that he'd often been hindered from coming to minister in Rome. Paul's ministry was to people who had not yet heard, and so when Paul made his ministry plans, he never wrote a visit to Rome into his ministry plans. He never put that on his itinerary because the people in Rome were unchurched, but they weren't unreached. So it wasn't Satan who prevented Paul from going to Rome. It was Paul's calling to the unreached that prevented him from going to Rome. Paul didn't plan to go to Rome to share the gospel because he assumed, and this is such an important point as we get into 1 Timothy, Paul didn't go to Rome to share the gospel because he assumed that the Jesus followers who were living in Rome would be the ones who would share the gospel with the people who still didn't understand that Jesus had died for them and were living in Rome at the time. But getting back to Paul's missionary journeys, I have to say that we can't be sure how many missionary journeys Paul went on because that's a subject that has been debated for centuries. It amazes me how many things we can debate about when it comes to God's word, when it comes to, to church. And, and I, it's just amazing to me how many things we can debate about. Uh, some people said that he went on three missionary journeys, but, but then they add that he mentions to the church at Rome that he's on his way to Spain. So if he went to Spain, that would be a fourth missionary journey but we're not sure that he actually made it to Spain, so that brings us back to three. Other people say that he went on five missionary journeys because of something that he says, that Luke says, at the end of uh, Acts chapters 13 and 14. So we're just going to say that Paul went on some missionary journeys. I authorize you to, to say that with, uh, with great confidence because we do know that much for sure, and nobody's going to argue with you if you say Paul went on some missionary journeys because we're going to stay out of the debate 
as to how many journeys Paul went on because in my mind, it doesn't matter how many journeys Paul went on. What matters is what he accomplished while he was traveling on those journeys and what he preached as he traveled. Those are the things that are vitally important. They're the things that we must understand. And that may have you wondering why I would even mention the debate that's going on, uh, has been raging over how many journeys Paul went on, and I apologize for drawing you into that terrible controversy, because I know you got enough controversy going on in your life every time you open your eyes and listen to the news in the morning. But I mentioned the debate because that'll stand as an important part of, of, uh, of our time in 1 Timothy. Because Paul is going to have a lot to say about the kinds of things that we should debate. The kinds of things that we should be discussing. That's going to be, uh, he's going to be a breath of fresh air in, in many ways as we go. But once again, back to Paul's missionary journeys. I want to tell you a story this morning about one of Paul's missionary's journeys. Paul, missionary journeys. Paul, some people would call it his second missionary journey, but we'll just call it the one that begins at the beginning of Acts chapter 16. And I know that's not a, you know, that's not a catchy title, but, but that's, that's, the, that's the, the journey that I want to tell you about. At the beginning of Acts chapter 16, Paul's agreed to disagree with the man that he had made his first missionary journey with, or his first, in, well, let's just stop that, okay? The man that he made his first missionary journey with, a man named Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas traveled together. And at the beginning of Acts chapter 16, Paul has agreed to disagree with Barnabas about taking John Mark along on this next missionary journey. And so Paul and Barnabas have decided to go their separate ways. Barnabas takes a, a, a guy named Mark. Yes, that Mark. He takes John Mark with him. And they travel together, kind of off in one direction, and Paul chooses a man named Silas, and they travel off in another direction. They divide up what they were going to do on that journey when they first began to discuss it. So Paul is now traveling with a, a new partner, a man named Silas. And with that background, this is the story from God's Word, from Acts chapter 16, with some cross-referencing and I hope you'll forgive me for that, to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul and Silas were traveling through Syria and Cilicia, visiting the churches that Paul and Barnabas had established there, had planted there on their first trip. And Paul and Silas were also sharing the gospel with people in those regions who had not yet heard. As Paul and Silas continued their journey together, they made a point to visit the cities of Derbe, and Lystra, and you can see that Lystra and Derby are quite near Tarsus, which if you recall other stories from the New Testament is where Paul himself had come from, so he knows this area quite well. Antioch is still down to the south there. It was the church at Antioch that sent out Paul and Barnabas, and then Paul and Silas as they made this journey. Uh, so they visited the cities of Derby and Lystra, and there in Lystra they met an older woman named Lois. Lois had grown up Jewish, and somewhere along the way, she had heard the good news about Jesus, and she had trusted him as her Savior and her Messiah. She believed him to be her Messiah and her Savior, and she began to follow Jesus as a result. Lois had a daughter named Eunice, and Eunice, who had also grown up Jewish, became a follower of Jesus as well, women of deep faith. 
We don't know anything about Lois's husband, the, you know, the daughter's husband. We don't know anything about her husband, but her, her, her daughter Eunice was married, and, uh, and, and we don't know much about him. We don't know his name, but we do know that he was a Greek, and that's going to be important as, uh, in, in other parts of the story. Uh, he was not a practicing Jew. Paul met and talked with that older woman named Lois and, and that, that her daughter named Eunice, and, and he discovered that their faith in Christ was just deep and, and resonant and sincere, sincere. Paul became similarly convinced about Lois and Eunice, and somewhere in the mix of all that, we're not sure exactly how it all happened, people began to talk to Paul about a young man named Timothy. All the believers in Lystra and in Derby there and in Iconium spoke very well of Timothy. And Paul began to wonder if perhaps he should invite Timothy to go along with he and Silas on this missionary journey together as they planted churches and, and, and brought the good news to places where it had never been before. So Paul met Timothy in a sort of job interview. And Paul was pleased to know that Timothy was the grandson of Lois and the son of of Eunice. Paul also took note of the fact that that deep and sincere faith that was in his grandmother's heart and his mother's heart was also evident in Timothy's life. So Paul invited Timothy to join the team. And having made sure that there would be no obstacles to Timothy ministering to Jews, Timothy joined Paul and Silas as they traveled from town to town preaching the gospel to the unreached and strengthening the churches, the baby churches that Paul and Barnabas had planted and helping those churches to grow. Paul had taken Timothy under his wings, so to speak, and that was the beginning of a relationship that would last a lifetime as Paul discipled Timothy as a father would disciple his son. And that is the story from God's Word. It's, uh, it's not often that I follow a story from God's Word with a story from my own personal experience, but I think that may be warranted this morning as we start into 1 Timothy. It's a story that I told you almost eight years ago now, and I hope the repetition won't bore you. Maybe you've slept since eight years ago, but I feel like I need to tell you this story again because starting 1 Timothy has revived something that has been dormant in my heart for too long now. And it's reminding, it's reminding me of, uh, of this story that, well, it's this story that woke me up to the truth of the, these first two verses of 1 Timothy. In order to tell you the story, I have to turn the clock back more than 30 years to a time when our family was living and ministering in the tribe. We were back and forth from the tribe to Aritao, the flight base. But we'd been asked by the mission organization we were serving with to move out to Manila to serve as field chairman while the real field chairman was on home assignment for a year. We reluctantly moved out to Manila and I began to go to my office every day to fulfill the administrative responsibilities that I now had with my new ministry of being field chairman. And I have to tell you that my reluctance to take on that role uh, the role of field chairman bore fruit because I can do administrative work. I'll, I'll admit that to you. I can do it. It's, it's not that. It's just that my soul dries out when that's all that I'm doing, when I'm not with people and in God's word and, and using that. So I began to pray that God would deal with the dryness in my heart and the oldness of my soul at that point and, and, uh, and restore my passion for ministry. And God answered that prayer in a remarkable and surprising way. 
One day when I was pushing papers as in my job as an administrator, the office reception is called uh, on the intercom to say that a man named James had shown up in the office and, and he was asking to see whoever was in charge. Well, as far as I was concerned, it was the receptionist because she was the one that was setting up the appointments. She was the one that knew what was going on, but uh, she, I knew she meant me. And so I asked her if he'd given any indication at all as to what it was that he wanted to talk about, and she said quite flat, flatly, nope, he didn't. So I told her to send him in, and, and in the, the moments that followed, I was greeted by a, a young, single man with a crisp British accent, who was living in Manila and working with an organization among the poor, an aid organization among the poor. He told me that his organization was interested in to expanding into, into the realm of, of impoverished tribal communities as well. And since he knew that the organization that I worked with was involved with tribal people, he was wondering if I'd be willing to come uh, and meet with their people and you know give a presentation and do a Q&A and share some insight about what it's, what it's like to work with tribal people. I have to admit that I was immediately skeptical, I, and I'm sorry to say that, but because, and the reason for that was that AIDS organizations and human rights organizations often interfere, uh, sometimes violently, with mission organizations, and, and I didn't want to open the door to that kind of opposition for, you know, for what we were doing. I told him as graciously as I could that I had a few call phone calls to make, but then I'd get back to him on his invitation, and well, he left. I made some phone calls to my opposite numbers in other mission organizations there in Manila and learned that no one had ever heard of the organization that he was working with. And, uh, and so I, I wasn't at all sure what to do, but, but in the end, I called James back to say that uh, I'd be glad to come to their offices and, and put on a presentation about working with tribal people. And shortly after that, I found myself telling the Bukalot story to a group of people who were trying to help the poor, but who had given no indication at all that they were followers of Jesus. In fact, it was clear right from the start that these were not people who followed Jesus. Now, if you know the Bukalot story, you know that it's a compelling story of redemption. So this new opportunity to share the gospel with people who needed to hear it wasn't lost on me. I knew that that's really what God had given me here. So I crafted the story to meet the need, as I try to always. And, and by that, I mean I didn't talk about the difference our organization had made among the Bukalot in their journey out of headhunting. I told them about the difference the gospel had made among the Bukalot in their journey from headhunting to Christ. They planned a dinner at the end of that time, at the end of that evening, and, and I made a point to sit with James. And as we sat together over the meal, I, I told James that I would love the opportunity uh, to tell him more of the Bukalot story and what, what, had, what had happened among them and invited him over to our house the next Thursday evening to eat with our family there in Metro Manila. He came to the house the next Thursday evening and that turned into an every Thursday evening thing. Our conversations began. We would eat. Uh, we had, a, we had a, a dining area kind of down on one level. And then there was a, a sala, a sitting room up in the next level. And then the bedrooms were up in the next level. It was a really nice house there in Metro Manila that we couldn't afford. But uh, our, our, our conversations, we, we would sit and eat dinner. And then we'd move up into the sala and... Uh, I began our conversations by asking him what he believed, and he was quick, no hesitation at all, quick to say that he had grown up Jewish, though not in an orthodox family. 
He explained to me that as he had grown up, he had remained Jewish, but now thought of himself as a liberal rather than a conservative Jew. He further explained that he wasn't sure that the Jewish scriptures had come from God and then added that he wasn't really sure that there was a God after all, that God actually existed. He told me he leaned towards, uh, toward Martin Buber's philosophy about relating to God and about God and his existence and added to that he believed that God didn't require anything of him but expressed real confidence that if he ever did discover something that God required of him, he was sure that he would be able to do that thing uh, that God demanded, that he would be able to please God. I understood then that he was a Jewish agnostic. He understood that, that Jews at one time had perhaps related to God, but he was no longer convinced that that was a way to relate to God because he wasn't sure that God was relatable. He wasn't sure that God was actually there. And, uh, and I knew that he wasn't... Uh, because of where he was, I, I realized the challenge that we were facing to move him from where he was to the place where he was ready to accept Jesus as his Messiah and as his Savior. But uh, I had been, I'd had a first-hand seat to the Bukalot and, and the journey that they made in that way, and, and uh, they were the most unlikely of people. And so James presented a challenge, but, but one that we began to believe God about. And as a family, we started praying for James. I knew that if I started the conversation by talking about Jesus, he would be absolutely unwilling to continue the conversation. No question about that. So I made up my mind that I'd say nothing about Jesus until the time was right. And boy, biting your tongue when it comes to talking about Jesus is not an easy thing to do. It's an odd place for me to, to be because I had talked freely about Jesus when I, when I, you know, when I did that presentation there at, uh, at his organization. I, I, when I told the Bukalot, you can't tell the Bukalot story without telling the story of Jesus. And I'd just been a week before. But as I would learn later, the veil that Paul described as preventing the Jews from hearing the truth about Jesus is a real thing. It turned out that James had no idea that I was going to talk to him about Jesus, and that became clear, more and more clear as time went on. Because he hadn't, he hadn't been, he'd been unable to hear the parts of my presentation that talked about my connection with Jesus. He just didn't pick up on it. So that first Thursday turned into a several weeks long odyssey as James and I played hide and seek with the truth of the gospel. When we first began to talk, I knew that one of two things was gonna happen as a result of the time that we had spent together. Either he would place his faith in Christ as his savior and Messiah, or he would walk away offended and perhaps angry at me for having wasted his time. I sensed that there would be no middle ground with James. I intended to follow the thought line of the book of Romans, which, by the way, is a great way to present the gospel. Not Romans Road, but the, the work that Paul does in those first four chapters to help us to understand uh, the state of world unbelief, Gentile unbelief, Jewish unbelief. Uh, but I, I knew that I needed to do that without turning to the book of Romans uh, because that would be an immediate turn off to him. You see, I've learned over the years that the gospel needs a context. And let me explain what I mean when I, I say that. The content of the gospel, the content of the gospel, never changes. But the context in which we share it does change. The message of the gospel never changes. Jesus died for you, he was buried, and he rose again on the third day. That's an ex 
incredibly simple message. And that's the message that every person on the planet needs to hear. But that message needs to be presented to a heart that's ready to hear it. And for the sake of your hearing it, let me remind you what Paul said in Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. I want you to notice what Paul says there. That, that he says that the message of the gospel, the gospel is the power of God. Paul didn't say that the gospel has the power of God that saves people. Paul said that the gospel is the power of God that saves people. That simple message that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures, is the dynamite that God uses to save people. That's his intention. I knew, I know the power of the gospel and I knew that the gospel was the message that James needed to hear, but I also knew that if I just started talking about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, James would have walked away without really hearing the gospel at all. So we, as we began our study in the word, I, I laid a challenge before James. I, I told him that I fully expected that some of the things that we would talk about, with some of the things that we would discuss, would cause conflict and, and maybe even sharp disagreements between him and me. And I could easily picture long evenings, I said, where we would just argue about stuff and then come to the end of the evening and have accomplished nothing. Nothing would be resolved. He agreed <laughs> that that was a real possibility and as an, outcome, as an outcome of the time that we spent together. He was quick to, to take my side on that one. So I suggested that we needed a, a standard, something to which we could turn when we disagreed. I told him that we needed like a, something like a, a dictionary of sorts. I added that we all know that, we, that sometimes we have a disagreement about what a word means and when we disagree about what a word means, what do we do? Well, look it up in the dictionary, right? And, and sometimes we find out that we were both correct. If you use it in this context, it means what you said. And if we use it in this context, it means what I said. Dictionaries do that sometimes. I said that in order to settle arguments, we needed a reference like that, something like that. So, no, so no, on those evenings when he said no and, and I said yes, we'd have something to turn to that was consistently right and true, entirely faithful, completely dependable. I suggested that on those occasions when he said no and I said yes, we could turn to this agreed upon reference and the reference would be right and whoever agreed with the reference would be right and whoever disagreed with the reference would be wrong. In other words, if the reference said yes, then the guy that said yes, he's the, he's the guy that's right. If the reference says no, then the guy who said no is right. Are you, you tracking with me? It's, it's good to hear. Are, are, you, are you tracking with me? You know I'm talking about Jesus, right? Okay, all right, all right. Just so we're, just so we're clear. James agreed, and that was kind of cool. We started off with agreement. He agreed that we needed something like that, but then asked where we could find something that would settle the kind of arguments that he and I were likely to have. He was anticipating them. And you can imagine his surprise when I suggested that the reference that we would, that we would steer by was the Jewish scriptures. <laughs> His mouth just kind of dropped open. Partly because I was willing to could give credence to the Jewish scriptures, but partly because it was such an old and outdated piece of literature. I mean, why would we refer to that? 
And I have to admit that I was just as surprised that he accepted that we would use the Jewish scripture as our standard to, to settle disagreements between us. So, well, there we go. That was going to be our source of truth. And just as, I, uh, as an aside, I have to say that, that that's an attitude that I found to be missing from many places in the church in America today. Would you forgive me for that? I, I mean, James being willing to accept the scripture as the standard that would be right and make both of us wrong if it came to that. Uh, we have a tendency in, in, our, in the church in America today to, to place the word of God in the same basket in our minds as, as Google and Wikipedia and, and social media and Fox News. In other words, we listen to God's word, but it's just another opinion to some of us an opinion that carries no more weight than any other opinion I might hear. But I believed back then when I talked with James, and I believe now that God's word, God's word, has the key answers for our lives. And that includes what we call the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures. I've never understood why we call one the Old Testament and the other the New Testament, because they're both pretty old if you think about it. You know, like maybe it should be the Old Testament and, and the less, slight, slightly less old Testament, but uh, enough to say that, that we have some, that we have a complete resource there, a source of truth. And it starts with the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures. I believe God's word to be the only consistently truthful and accurate and dependable resource we have available for, to us today, even though we live in a world where there are more ideas available to us right now than there had ever been in history. I believe that God's word is a roadmap that can help us choose a course and find our way through the most congested city streets. And perhaps more importantly, I believe that God's word is the roadmap that can help us find our way home from the most remote and dangerous country roads. But I have to say that God's word is not a magical book. Listen to me. I know that some of you have a family Bible. That tradition has gotten kind of old, but some of us have a family Bible, and, and you know, it's this book that sits there and creates a magic atmosphere. I don't know exactly how it works, because I've never seen anybody read a family Bible. But, you know, there it is. It's that great big book. But it's not enough to just have God's word in your home. You have to read it and study it and meditate on God's word so it can point you in the right direction. The only map that can't help you is the map that you don't consult. I mean, when you're out there driving, you can have the best map in the world uh, right there in your hands, but if you don't consult the map, it can't help you to find your way home, right? I mean, that's the way it works. God's word is the only book that can help you find yourself. And that's because God's word is a book that's intended to tell you who you are. And it's a book that's intended to prompt you to ask the question, since this is who I am, what does that make me want to do? That's what God's word does on a consistent basis. I love the book. And God's word gets all that done by telling us real stories about real people People like you and me who heard God speak and then either took him at his word or walked away unchanged. And that brings us back to James and his journey because he was about to be confronted with a message that would either lead him to believe God or prompt him to walk away. James was a Jew, and I believe that the best strategy for helping him to choose to believe in Jesus was to walk him through the stories from Genesis that God told through the, his interaction with the Jewish people. After all, Genesis is a main part of the Jewish scriptures, and 
James had just agreed to use the Jewish scriptures as our standard for settling disagreements, so it only made sense to start looking at those stories. And so we started into the stories at the point where Genesis says, in the beginning, and just for the record, I didn't argue with him about whether or not there is a God. I just started with the reality that in the beginning, God created. He didn't bring it up. He didn't, we just, here's the deal, here's the truth. In the beginning, God created, and James, I don't know if he believed it at that point, but he, he accepted it. Over the course of several weeks, we talked about Adam and Eve and the fall of humankind and the mess this world is in as a result. We talked about Cain and Abel and Abel's decision to offer a blood sacrifice while Cain brought an offering of vegetables. And you remember from the stories when we looked at them years ago in, in Genesis, you remember from the stories that we, we talked about the fact that God accepted Abel and his offering but rejected Cain and his offering. Uh, we talked about the flood and how God punished people, the sinful people who lived in Noah's day. We talked about the fact that God was always demanding things from people and people were consistently unable to do the things that God demanded. We talked about how God always responded to people's failure by punishing them for their failure to live up to his for failing to live up to his expectations. And at each step, we also talked about how God offered forgiveness to anyone who would offer a blood sacrifice. We talked about how people, the people who believed God and his offer of forgiveness uh, and, and the ones that believed him brought a blood sacrifice because they believed what God had said about how he would respond to the blood. This conversation between me and him went on for weeks. I'd, I'd, I lost track of eight, ten weeks. We met every Thursday night and all we were talking about is those old stories from Genesis. And every night when we'd finish the conversation, James, literally every night, he would put his hand on my shoulder on the way out the door and he would say, you've given me a lot to think about. And today, 30 years later, I can still clearly remember the night I looked my new friend in the eye and said, James, you need a blood sacrifice. Well, that was the moment that James chose to disagree with me for the first time, literally for the first time in our discussions. I think in part because it had just become personal. Well, we'd finally disagreed, so I reminded him of our agreement to let the Jewish scriptures settle our disagreements, and then I showed him Leviticus 17, 11, that says, for the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given, you, I've given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sins the author of Hebrews would later say. I didn't show him Hebrews because, well, that's in the slightly less Old Testament and we weren't going there. I reminded him that God had said there that it, there could be no forgiveness without shedding blood and I invited him to show me where the Jewish scripture said, you know, where God said, okay, the deal's off. Uh, you, you don't have to shed blood anymore. James smiled and said, let, let, me, let me just take a minute to explain to you how sacrifices work. And so this is a Jewish man explaining to a he doesn't know what I am just yet at this point, but he's going to explain to me how sacrifices work. He went on to say that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all shepherds. So when they would sacrifice an unblemished male lamb, they knew that they were potentially jeopardizing the future of their flock if they were just going to kill these, these healthy male lambs. 
And when they were willing to do that, James said, that showed their sincerity in wanting to be forgiven. He then went on to say that if God were to ask him to sacrifice a lamb, remember he's the guy who can do whatever God asks or demands, but if God were to ask him to sacrifice a lamb, uh, he could buy a lamb easily enough and it wouldn't involve any kind of sacrifice at all. But his, and because it wouldn't involve any kind of sacrifice on his part, just buying this lamb, that wouldn't prove his sincerity. But, James said, if God were to ask me for time or money to sacrifice my time or money and, and, and offer my time or money to him, that would, include, that would imply a sacrifice. That I'd have to sacrifice to do that, and that would show my sincerity in, willing to, in my willing desire to be forgiven. That's what James said. It was a powerful and convincing argument, and I have to admit for a moment that I was stymied in terms of what to say in response. But as the response literally fell out of my mouth, I became even more convinced that God's Spirit was truly on the hunt in this young man's life. I told him that it made a lot of sense to think that God's looking for sincerity and that, and that offering a lamb really wouldn't be a sacrifice uh, nor would it show sincerity for people like us because we're not shepherds and we can easily buy a lamb that means nothing to us and then offer it. But then I asked him to think through the story of the day that God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, his son. I reminded him that Abraham obeyed God and was willing to sacrifice his son, but God stopped him, God intervened, and allowed Abraham to sacrifice a ram in the place of his son. Of course, James had grown up going to synagogue and I, believe me, he knew the stories better than I did. So I asked him, where did Abraham get the lamb, the ram that he, that he offered in Isaac's place? His eyes got wide. He said, Abraham found the ram caught in a thicket by its horns, so it was unblemished. I waited for a moment, and then I heard him say, Abraham found that ram, so that wasn't Abraham's ram. And I said, that's right. And that means that God wasn't looking for sincerity. He was looking for, he was demanding a blood sacrifice from Abraham. And then I said it again. James, if Abraham needed a, black, a blood sacrifice, you need a blood sacrifice. He was quiet for a moment and then he looked at his watch. And it was late in the evening by that time and he needed to get home. And so he got up from the chair that he was sitting in and there in the sala and I walked him to the door and he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, you've given me a great deal to think about. We agreed to meet again the next Thursday, but two days later, Saturday morning, James called with a, in a bit of a panic in his voice and, and, and said, I need to talk to you now. So we agreed to meet in an hour at a nearby donut shop because I didn't know what was going on, but, but I was pretty sure that donuts would help. I was, uh, I was waiting for him at a table there in, the, in that donut shop when he walked right up to me, sat down, and, and without any preamble said, I need a blood sacrifice. Those are the first words out of his mouth. I need a blood sacrifice. The Spirit had done that work. I didn't find out for the, find about this next part for, for months afterward, but the day that James said that, he fully expected, he fully expected that I would ask him to join me in offering a blood sacrifice maybe in the, in the backyard of our house. That was what he thought was going to happen. He needed a blood sacrifice. I had pressed him to it, and so I'd better be the guy that comes through on this. As a testament to the, 
the work of God's Spirit in his heart. After all those weeks, he still didn't know where this conversation was going. He had no idea where I was about to take him. He said that he needed a blood sacrifice, and I had agreed to stick to the Jewish scriptures as we had our discussion. So I took that moment to tell him about something that the greatest of the Jewish prophets had said. I told him that the prophet's name was John, and it was his job to get the people of Israel ready for the coming of the Messiah, the arrival of the Messiah. I told James that one day John had seen Jesus walking toward him along the shores of the Jordan River. When John saw Jesus, he said, Look, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I went on from there to share with him that Jesus was the blood sacrifice that God provided for our sin. And then I shared that sweetest of all messages. James, I said, Jesus died for you. He was buried, and he rose again on the third day because God the Father was satisfied with the sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf. I said that hoping that he was ready to hear it and believe it, but instead of having a come-to-Jesus moment, James got truly angry with me for the first time in all of our conversation. He just didn't see this coming. He had no idea where I was going to take him. I am sick and tired, he said, of the hypocrisy of Christians. He went on to say, I know Christians who, who spend entire weekends getting drunk and partying and having affairs, and in the end they just say that, that it's okay because Jesus died for their sins, and I am sick of, having, of hearing that. I'm sick of that kind of hypocrisy. And for a moment, once again, I wasn't at all sure what to do because he was right. There are Christians who live like that and still call themselves Christians. I paused and then I said, James, I know that there are people who claim to believe one thing and then live like that thing isn't true. But I need to know, is that how you see me? James sighed and he said, no, no Jay, that's not how I see you or your family at all. And then he added, I don't know what you are. So I said, James, I'm a man who believes that Jesus died for me. And because he died for me, I've decided to live for him and follow him for the rest of my life. And that's who I am today. He cleared his throat, and then nodded his head, and stood up. He put his hand on my shoulder while I was still sitting there in the, in the booth in the donut shop, and he said, you've given me a lot to think about. And he left me sitting there in that seat there in the donut shop. I sat there and kicked myself, literally kicked myself. For moving too fast. I kept, kicked myself for losing the opportunity to lead him to Christ by failing to make sure that his heart was truly prepared to hear the good news about Jesus. I sat there and prayed that he'd still show up, make the decision to show up at my house the following Thursday night. Well, he did show up at my house the following Thursday night, and this time, I was the one who was full of questions as we were sitting there at the, at the table before we went up into the sala. We just enjoyed family time together, and then we'd move up into the sala. We, we finished the meal, and, and then we went up to the sitting room to continue our conversation, but this time, I had no idea where to begin. I had thought through each week previous. So I reminded him, that the week before, I had told him that Jesus had died for him, that he was buried, and that he rose again from the dead. And then I said, when I told you all that, you, 
you got angry at me. I know, he said in, in typical British fashion. I am, I am so uh, sorry for my anger. And I told him that I understood why he was angry. But then I told him that I didn't know where to go in our conversation because I didn't know what he believed about what, he had, what I had said the last time we talked. He smiled. The most reassuring smile. And then he said, oh, I believe that Jesus died for me. I nearly fell off my chair. I mean it, I, I nearly fell off my chair and I said, well James, I gotta tell you, that changes everything. That changes absolutely everything. And that was the moment that we began a much longer conversation called discipleship. James was single when we first met him in Manila and over the course of time, God led him away from the aid organization that he'd been working with. He began to attend church and, and life group in the church where Faith and I and the kids were ministering there in Manila. And God brought an awesome group of people into his life there in that place. Eventually, James returned to England and was soon enrolled in seminary where he earned his PhD in theology. And during that stretch of time, he got married and had four kids, became a professor of theology at a university and pastored a church in Springfield and preached the gospel. And there and then, through a series of twists and turns back in 2016. He and I lost touch with one another. Let me remind you what Paul said in the passage for this morning. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, in Christ Jesus our Lord. James became my true son in the faith more than 30 years ago, and I should have not let anything stop me from offering him grace, mercy, and peace. But over the last few years, I've turned my back on him, I'm sorry to say, and the Spirit of God has used this passage this week to show me that I never should have done that. In fact, the Spirit of God has used the passage we're looking at this morning to prompt me to renew my relationship with James and because of God's grace, I'll be meeting him at Springfield for supper on Tuesday evening. I say that to illustrate that God's word is alive and powerful. Paul called Timothy his true son in the faith because he discipled Timothy. And because of that, I, I need you to know that we're, we're not gonna be able to talk about, I'm sorry, about First and Second Timothy without talking about discipleship. And that's why I told you the story about James this morning. I had the privilege of leading James to trust Jesus as his Messiah and his Savior, and I had the privilege, especially early on, of discipling him, and that's how he became my true son in the faith. But having said that, I have to insist that you understand that the opportunity that I had to lead James to Christ and disciple him was not the result of some strategic ministry planning on my part. My privilege to lead James to Christ and disciple him came to me unannounced and unplanned at the moment when God walked James into my office. It's very like what happened to Jesus the night that Nicodemus approached him in John chapter 3. Jesus didn't go out looking for Nicodemus. It was Nicodemus who sought out Jesus and was just willing to take the time that was needed to tell Nicodemus about being born again. And I realize my time is 
gone, but I'm just going to keep talking. If you need to leave or something, go ahead. Just a couple minutes here. James came to my office thinking that he was going to get some help with, an or, with organizational strategy, and he had no idea. He had no idea that the real reason he came to my office was because he was looking for his Messiah. James was looking for the Messiah, his Messiah, and God sent him to me and gave me the privilege of leading James to Jesus. And in closing, I'm, I want you to look at a picture. That's, that's Miriam. She's the youngest daughter, youngest of James's four kids. And at the time when that picture was taken back in 2014, she was six years old. Back in 2014, Faith and I were in the habit of, of visiting James and his family down in Springfield from time to time, and since we all had busy schedules, we were only able to visit semi-occasionally. That was just kind of the term that we put to it. And there'd been quite a bit of uh, gap of time between our visit in 2014 and the previous visit, well, we, and, and Miriam had not remembered our, the previous visit, and she, in fact, didn't remember Faith and me. When Faith and I arrived, Miriam came up and, uh, to us and gave us a hug. She then stepped back from that, that joint hug and stepped up and, and, and leaned in and, and hugged me a second time. And then she stepped back again and then she stepped and hugged me a, a third time. And then she stepped back and, and just stood there and stared at me, which prompted Faith to say, she's really studying you. I assumed it, it probably had something to do with my bald head, but that's when her older sister, his, her oldest sister, leaned in and said, she's been waiting all day to meet the man who told her daddy about Jesus. I can't even begin to describe to you what that did to me at that moment and what it continues to do to me today. Those words, those simple words, and that's the real reason that I told you the story about James this morning. I told you that story about my privilege in leading him to Jesus and discipling him because I want the same thing for you. I want you to have the privilege of leading people to Christ and discipling them. There are people that you work with, people that, that you rub shoulders with. There are people in your neighborhood or school who would love to hear about Jesus from you. There are people in your life who would listen to what you have to say about God's word, but for some reason you've never talked to them about that. There are people that you, you could tell about Jesus, but for some reason you've just never gotten around to it. In closing this morning, I want you to look one more time into those sweet eyes, and I want to ask you, do you have any idea how much difference Jesus has made in her life? And it all started at the moment when somebody had the desire to tell her daddy about Jesus. First Timothy is going to be quite a ride, and there's going to be plenty of bumpy parts, and I'm telling you right now, there are going to be Sunday mornings when you don't like what Paul has to say. Not me, of course, but what Paul has to say. You are not going to like it. I'm, I'm sure of it. You're going to want to throw things at me. You may want to start uh, collecting rocks there at your seat just uh, for moments like that. I know it's going to happen because Paul, well, he's going to go after it, but... He's going to talk about discipling and being discipled. And that's something that I want for all of us.
for all of us. So buckle your seatbelts and let's get ready to do this, but let's ask God to do a work in our hearts, in our families, and in our church. And in closing, I want to read to you one more time that passage for this morning. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Will you stand with me in the presence? Father in heaven, we look at those words from that, that Paul wrote to Timothy, grace, mercy, and peace to you. God, that's the thing that we want at work in our lives. It's taken a long time to say something really simple this morning. But God, I pray that you would just watch over our hearts as we go from here. Give us a passionate desire to disciple and be discipled, to evangelize and to... And to to share the gospel with people and lead, and by that lead to a relationship that, that can last a lifetime as we watch people grow. God, we want that for our fellowship and we are asking you to do that in our midst in 2022. Break our hearts with what breaks yours and help us, God, to follow you as others follow us. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we ask. Amen and amen. We're heading out that door again, and the challenge I'm going to lay in front of you is that you would pray this week that God would speak to your heart about discipling and being discipled. And we're going to go after 1 Timothy with all of our hearts as Paul shares with us what that looks like in the context of the church. If you're here for the first time, forgive me for this, but uh, we always end like this. Ready?